All right, well, good morning. Um, welcome to Parkview East. Am I on, Philip? Check, one, two. I'll just keep talking, and if you figure it out, awesome. Um, my name is Doug, pastor here at Parkview East. It's a joy to be able to be with you here this morning. Uh, before we dive into today's message, I just want to give you a couple of updates of kind of some things that have been going on here at church. Um, in, in case you did not know, uh, there was a pretty significant vote this week at Parkview um, concerning really what the kind of the vision of the church looks like as we move forward. Um, and the congregational meeting was, was Monday night, was our annual... All right, it is working in some degree. No. Annual meeting was Monday night, and um, really what was on the table before us was the potential of of merging or, or partnering with a church out in North Liberty um, that would become eventually, essentially Parkview North and then purchasing the building down here so that Faith Academy could continue to grow and have space to do so and that as a church we would have um, visibility on Highway 6, more parking and more space to meet um, as a church. And so Monday night the vote was had and it passed with a 91% vote. And so absolutely... So very significant. Really as a church, what we have been praying, what many of you have been praying for is that, that God would make it just really clear um, that the congregation was united and behind this. And we were asking the Lord for at least an 80% vote to move forward. Um, and, that, and we were really asking that the vote wouldn't be close, you know, but it would be really clear. And he did that with 91%. And so we're really excited about what that means, both for the church and for, for the school. We'll talk a little bit more, um, just a few other things I want to share about that. But I thought it would be really appropriate, as we have been praying for this, um, to spend just a few minutes this morning just thanking God and praising him um, for his faithfulness, for his direction, and for his provision. And so uh, why don't you guys just join with me in, in prayer, and I'll have Wayne, you want to start us off?
Father God, Lord, we do thank you for your faithfulness, for your goodness, Lord, and um, Lord, just your answer to prayer, Lord. We know that for um, weeks, for months even, um, we have been crying out to you for your direction, for your provision, Father, and um, we just thank you that you, you made it really clear um, which way we were to go forward, Father, and so we pray that as we continue to take steps of obedience and following you, Lord, that you would continue to provide, um, Lord, and that you would continue to um, be glorified um, just through the vision of this church. Um, we love you, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. So just real quick before we kind of dive into the message, a couple of just nuts and bolts, some things that you may want to know. Um, just spend a few minutes with that. Um, so the building closing is going to be this Friday. Kyle Galloway, we've kind of, he's the guy who's our treasurer at church and financially the guy who's really um, seen how this makes a really, it just makes a lot of sense for us as a church financially. Um, he's going to serve really as the property manager. So internally we're going to kind of do some of that ourselves. Um, our, our hope is that you know, in order for us to, you know, stuff has to move out in, of the space. They have, a, they, they bought the Kmart. Maybe you saw that article in the paper. They are, went in with Kmart, so they have a space that needs to get renovated. Um, so really, honestly, before there's any hammers that are being swung, any walls that get torn down or built up or whatever, it's going to be after Christmas before any of that happens. And so you, you won't see much happening around here until that as far as just the building goes. Um, there is a plan. We have more space as far as Faith Academy goes. That's kind of the pressing question is what are you going to do for sixth grade? Well, um, there, there are some vacancies within the building and some, some good options that we have. So um, moving forward, as, as far as Heartland is concerned, they're going to vote next week on the 17th as a church to, to you know, kind of join with Parkview. And that, that church is going to do that. And then from there, Parkview is going to essentially do what we did here at East Campus. They're going to put a call out looking for about 30 or 40 folks. Um, that will leave Central Campus and start to form a group that will worship out there and join with Heartland. And so it will look a bit like that. Over the coming months, the other thing that is, you know, of note is that there will be um, really a call. In order for us to make this deal, we're, we're taking out uh, essentially a $2 million loan. Um, we got an awesome uh, interest rate from the bank, 3.9%. And um, our hope is to be able to pay that down. We haven't had debt since 2004. And so over the next couple of weeks or months, you know, there, there really will be a call out to the congregation to be able to say, help us retire this debt as soon as possible, essentially. And so that's something that you guys as a family can start to think of. Is that something you want to put your money towards to help as a church um, get, get rid of that debt? Um, some other changes that, that may be helpful to know, uh, service times will be different at Central Campus uh, starting July 1st. They'll go from, um, they're currently worshiping at three different services, and it will go down to meeting at 9 and 1030. Um, that, that will help in a variety of ways over there, just kind of reduce the need of so many volunteers and people serving and kind of concentrate it just around two services. We won't really see much of a, a difference here at East. Um, there may be some potential in the fall of maybe starting a Sunday school hour or doing something different in the morning, like maybe around that 9 o'clock hour. And so that, that way across campuses, the times will at least be, be consistent. So that's something that you can be watching for as well. Um, other than that, there's, there's not a lot that I have to report. Um, more information, I'm sure, will be coming in the next couple of weeks and ways to get involved um, as well. So that being said... Uh, we're going to turn our attention now to the book of Ruth, and hopefully you've enjoyed just walking through this book. It's been, for me, it's personally been an awesome, um, an awesome study, and I've really enjoyed it. I've been able to in, just really enjoy teaching it as well. Um, today we're going to kind of land the plane, and so if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open to Ruth chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the last couple of verses, verses 13 through 21, and uh, I'm going to read those for us now. We'll pray and then kind of dive in. And so if you have your Bibles, again, Ruth chapter 4, 
in the Old Testament. It's a smaller book right after um, Judges there. And um, I'm going to go ahead and read for us now. This is verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. Spirit, we ask that you would come now. That you would reveal to us your son in these words. That the Father may be glorified. Lord, we pray that you would take these words that are eternal and that are true. And that you would write them on our hearts. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed, but when a kid watches a movie, maybe an action movie, a movie that is, you know, child appropriate, uh, it's not uncommon for the, the child to imagine themselves as one of the characters in that movie, right? They, they get an idea of who they see somebody that they would like to be like, and then to imagine themselves, maybe role play, play games where they are that person. For me growing up, it was maybe Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, all right? An amen over there? No, is that, that you, John? Or I don't know. Oh, right there. Okay, there it is. Gotcha. Yes, yes. I was going to say, John, really? <laughs> All right. Learning a lot about you. But the idea is basic. You know, when I was in college, I can remember there was a, there was a small, this is a safe place, right? This is safe. I can be vulnerable. I can be real. Uh, there was a small period of time where I got really into spaghetti westerns, okay? And me and my roommate were living in the dorms at the time, and we would, we would put on an old Clint Eastwood movie, maybe Outlaw Josie Whale or A Fistful of Dollars, and, and we would watch these old spaghetti westerns, and we would cover the floor with newspaper, right? And I don't, I don't recommend this by any means. And, and then we would get Red Man. I don't know if you're familiar with Red Man. We would buy some Red Man. We would put some in, and then we would just spit, just at random all over our all over our room on the newspapers while we were watching these old spaghetti westerns. If you haven't seen them, I mean, it's amazing the precision with which Clint Eastwood could spit skull and like land in dog's eyes and things like that. It was ridiculous, right? But we would kind of, you know, envision ourselves as this like, you know, this intense outlaw of a person, right? It's not too uncommon of a thing for people to do. As we get older, as I've gotten older, I've noticed that the stories that we see, that we tend to enjoy the most, the movies I tend to enjoy the most are the ones where I see characters who are not what I envision myself to be, but who I can actually see myself in. Characters who I can actually relate to, who are real, they're relatable, that remind me to some degree of myself. In this short story, the book of Ruth, We've seen really three main characters emerge over the course 
of the story. Which character, I ask, do you find yourself relating most to in this story? Which of these three characters speaks to us the most? You might be inclined to think, well, perhaps it's, it's Ruth, right? The, the book, after all, is named after Ruth. She's this character in the story who takes one risk after another. She, she thinks not of her own comfort and her own life, but she gives herself this amazing display of a love and loyalty to her mother-in-law. Truly, truly, Ruth is a beautiful picture of the steadfast love of God. Maybe it's Ruth, you think, or, or, or perhaps it's, it's Boaz, this worthy man of tremendous integrity. From his arrival into the story, in the midst of darkness, we are given a constant glimmer of hope because of his presence. He, he would go on to care for not just one widow, but two. Through Boaz, Naomi, and Ruth, we see both of their deepest needs are met. Like Ruth, Boaz also demonstrates, he's a picture, a portrait of the steadfast love of God. Maybe it's Boaz. But for me, as I read this story, this is what has, has really, it for me, has been eye-opening as I have read it, is the character who, who I find that relates most to me in this story, it's not Ruth. It's not Boaz, it's Naomi. She's the one who I can relate to the most. So, so this morning, what I would like to do as we just kind of bring this, this series to a close, is I would like for us to spend a few minutes just focusing on the life of Naomi. Naomi is, is there at the very beginning of the book. And as we come to a close here in the end of chapter 4, the story ends with this really wonderful picture of Naomi. And all the while, from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, it seems to be that this whole time it is Naomi who God is chasing down. It's Naomi who God is pouring out his steadfast love it's her journey that we are on. And we see that this book of Ruth could really be characterized, if there was a, a kind of a series title to place over it, it would be a journey from famine to fullness. Or perhaps a journey from death to life. It's the story of Naomi. We are introduced to Naomi at the very beginning of the story. And, and as we can see, as we've seen, things aren't going well for our girl Naomi. She's come, she lives during this time period of social chaos, complete lawlessness, the period of the judges. It's not a good time to live. We see in verse 1 that, that not just is it not a good time to live, this time of judges, this 400 span of time, but it's also not good where she's living because there's famine in the land. We learn that in verse 1. So what does she, her and her family do? They pack up. They leave the promised land, right? It's a significant thing for them to leave the land that the, their people have been promised for years, that they wandered around in the wilderness to step into, to leave that land. It's a significant thing. It tells you things aren't going well for Naomi and her family. And they don't just leave the promised land. 
It's not just bad enough that they leave the promised land. They go to a place that God has specifically told them to stay away from. They go into the land of Moab. And, th and then when they get there, we learn things just keep getting worse for Naomi. Her husband dies in verse 3. And then when you think things couldn't get any worse, well, they just get worse. In verse 5, we learn that both of her sons, Malon and Kilion, have died as well. Though they sought relief in their move from Bethlehem, the house of bread, to Moab, instead what they found was death. That's what they found in Moab. One tragedy after another. One storm after another. And the weather, it seems, just won't break for Naomi. You know, the loss of a child uh, is one of the worst experiences that someone can endure. When you think of suffering and pain and grief in the human experience, I, it doesn't get much worse than losing a child. Many of you know this, my, my story and the story of my, my family. And a couple years ago, we lost a, a little girl by the name of Lila. And, and as we walked through that, in many ways, we continue to walk through it. We have met others who have similar stories. And in every case, though the circumstances may be different, the age may be different, the, the cause of death may be different, there is a unique connection that we share. To some degree, we've walked this, a similar path, right? And if pain were to be measured in depth, kind of look around and you see people on the same level. There's a connection there. And the author does something interesting here in verse 5 to reveal the depth of suffering that, they, that Naomi is going through. The word here in verse 5 for sons is an unusual choice. It talks about the loss of her sons in verse 5. Now, now in verses 2 it talks about her sons and in verses 3 it talks about her sons. But the Hebrew word in verse 5 is different. It's not the same word as in verses 2 and in verses 3. If you were to read your English translation, you would see the word sons in all three. But in verse 5, the word, the Hebrew word that is used is the word yelid. Yelid. It's generally reserved, this word, to describe small children throughout the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 6, when Pharaoh's daughter discovers this basket tucked in the reeds in the river and, and opens it up, and in there she sees a child. It's the word yelid. She sees a child in the basket, Moses, right? It's the exact same word here. But in this case, what makes it so unique is it's one of the only places in the Old Testament where this word yelid is used to describe grown men. Right, so the author is, is showing us, in effect, saying, listen, she hasn't just lost her sons. She has lost her boys. She's lost her babies. Her pain is significant. As you consider Naomi's situation and the way the story opens and begins, as she contemplates her tragedy, she comes to what many may consider an understandable but a terrifying conclusion. The Lord is against me. 
That's what she says. At the closing of chapter 1, we learn that Naomi is bitter. We see it when she tries to push back Orpah and Ruth and tell them, don't return to me to Bethlehem when she hears that food comes back and she comes. And she says, stay here for the Lord. The Lord is against me. It's a a terrifying proclamation, a terrifying place to be. As she considers the presence of tragedy in her life, I don't think that any of us should be surprised with her attitude or her conclusion. In fact, there may be some of you who have walked through tragedy, walked through loss, have suffered a great deal, and have come to the exact same conclusion, that the Lord is against me. How should we respond to that? Now, Naomi, she's not all wrong in her theology. See, the wonderful thing about Naomi is she understands that God is sovereign over everything. She affirms his sovereignty, his control, his reign. But the problem is that she sees him as being the responsible one, blow after blow after blow. And her conclusion is that the God of the universe is against me. As we come to the conclusion of the book today, we see how this story is revolved. We won't find an explanation of why bad things happen. Ruth doesn't tell us, the book of Ruth doesn't give us an answer for why pain and suffering come into our lives and are a part of the human experience. But it does, it does show us that Naomi's conclusion, the Lord is against her, is wrong. The presence of suffering in your life, and this is really the main point, of the message and the main point of these last verses. The presence of suffering, of pain, of tragedy in your life does not mean God is against you. Does not mean that. We don't know exactly what it means, but we do know through reading the book of Ruth, it doesn't mean that, that he's against you. As you go throughout the book, you will see one display, one demonstration after another of love extended to Naomi, God's loving kindness, his hesed for Naomi, showing Naomi that he is still present and that he is not against her. We see it in chapter 1, this picture of Naomi. She hears that bread is returned to Bethlehem, and she leaves Moab and and comes back, and, and then Ruth clings to her, this committing herself in this amazing picture of loyalty and love. She's not going back alone. Ruth is with her. We also learn in the way that chapter 1 ends is that it's in the middle of the beginning of the barley harvest. Bread is back. The famine is over. God has not forgotten her and has not forgotten his people. The end of chapter 1, even at the end of this chapter that starts off with such, such tragedy, ends with a faint whisper. I am here. I'm not against you, Naomi. I love you. Then you look into chapter 2. Ruth ventures into the fields to glean with the reapers. Told in verse 3 that she just so happens to find herself in the field of Boaz, who just so happens to visit his field the day and that day and notices her immediately. Ruth leaves the fields after a lovely date over some fine roasted grain with Boaz. And he loads her up with a ridiculous amount of grain to bring back to her mother-in-law, Naomi. 
Naomi hears as Ruth returns all that had happened that day, whose field she was in, somebody who had the right, the opportunity to redeem her. And the whisper begins to grow louder. Naomi, I am here with you. I'm not against you. I love you. Don't know if she hears it quite yet. Chapter 3, together Naomi and Ruth pull off this pretty amazing plan in the middle of the night. Boaz responds in an even more amazing way. In this late night scene on the middle of the threshing floor, Boaz agrees to marry her. The nearer kinsman comes up and, and Boaz, if, if he won't marry her, Boaz will. Then before he sends Ruth home, in verse 15, we see that he says, bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. And Ruth holds out the garment and, and Boaz reaches and he measures six measures of barley and put it on her. Why did he do this? Because he insisted that she not go back empty handed to Naomi. Are you empty now, Naomi? The whisper continues to grow louder. I am here with you. I am not against you, Naomi. I love you. Then in chapter 4 last week, we looked at how God took care of the problem of the nearer kinsman, person next in line to redeem the land and to take Ruth to be his, his, his wife. He opts out when he hears what's all involved, doesn't want anything to do with Ruth or Naomi. And Boaz and Ruth are married. And look what it says in verse 13 of our text this morning. Is, does, does it say this? Read along with me. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and she bore him a son. Is that what it says? No, it's not what it says. It says, so Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. The Lord throughout this story demonstrated over and over and over again his steadfast, unfailing love for Naomi. And then in the final scene, the last image that we have of this woman is in verse 16. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and she became his nurse. You know what the word that's used there in Hebrew for child? It's the word yelled. The exact same word to describe the loss of her two boys. At this point in the story, as it draws to an end, you can almost hear the whisper has turned into a shout, Naomi, I am here with you. I am not against you. I love you. I have brought you from famine to fullness. Your story may have started out with death, with pain, with suffering, with tragedy, but your story ends with new life. I wonder if you are able to hear the whisper of God through the noise of tragedy and suffering in your life. Can you hear God's whisper? Sometimes it's faint. Sometimes it's hard to pick up. Can you feel his presence with you along the path of suffering? When I think of what we, when we lost our baby girl, it was by far the worst thing that we've endured in our life. But along the way, 
we could see God's hand at work. The way he brought me and my wife together closely, we didn't go through that tragedy alone. He used it, I think, in some ways to strengthen our relationship and our marriage and, and even our family. There were friends throughout that period that we didn't even know we had, right, that, that began to emerge and care for us in the way that we felt loved by those around us, not just our friends, but, but by our church. The affection that he gave us for, for our church was deep and one that had, we had maybe not experienced before. Doesn't make it any better, right? The loss was a loss and it hurts and it still hurts. We, we have a new baby girl now, but she doesn't replace the girl that we lost, right? The same way with Naomi. This, this child sitting in her lap doesn't make her boy suddenly come back to life. But it keeps her from concluding that the Lord is against her. She's been dealt a difficult hand. She has real significant loss in her life. This baby doesn't replace anybody that she's lost. He won't replace her husband. Obed won't replace her boys. We aren't given an answer to the significance of suffering in our life. But we can conclude that it doesn't mean God is against us. It's what the birth of this child means and teaches us. God has not forgotten his people. He, he's not just not forgotten and abandoned, not abandoned Naomi. He has not abandoned his plan or his purpose. In Exodus 6, the Lord speaks to Moses exactly what he is up to in this book he says, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. These are God's eternal purposes. He is making a people for himself. And his plan, the book of Ruth teaches us, it won't be thwarted. His purposes won't be altered because of the circumstances, because of the social chaos, right? They won't be altered. His plans will be affected in the lives of his people. What an amazing story that in this time of social disorder, of complete lawlessness, God would zero in on one seemingly insignificant family. And he would identify a poor grieving widow, and he would use her to accomplish his eternal purposes, that his plan would continue, that it would go on. A life marked by great pain and suffering, God with an outstretched hand worked to redeem that life and to continue his plan. The child would be the redeemer. If you look at verse 14, it's clear that all along, Boaz is not the one. As they sing this prayer, the child's placed in her lap, and the women of the neighborhood and her community sing a blessing and a prayer over Naomi. Boaz is not the redeemer that's mentioned. It's the baby 
the child, the yellow, that is, he is the redeemer. That child would continue the royal line, which would ultimately give us King David, the greatest kings throughout Israel's history. And then in the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, we are told that another child would come from this line, the very son of God, Jesus himself, who would pay the ultimate price and become not just Naomi's redeemer, but yours and mine as well. Our story, in a lot of ways, is very similar, can be very similar to Naomi's. A journey from famine to fullness. Under the wings of the Almighty, under the blood of Jesus Christ, our story becomes one from death to life. This story isn't just about Naomi. It's about us. It's about me. It's about, it's about you and whether or not we fit into God's story, his eternal plans from the beginning. They won't be thwarted, right? They won't be altered. He is supreme. He is in complete control. And even when suffering and when pain comes into your life, you may not have meanings this side of eternity. You may not come to an understanding of why God allowed it to happen. If you do, awesome. But odds are you won't. But what you can absolutely know for sure is that as you examine the difficult times in your life, what it does not mean is that God is against you. It's not what it means. He's with you. He's for you. And his love will never, ever leave you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you um, just for this picture that you have given us through the story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. Lord, we thank you not just for the wonderful story that it is, but for the truths that can be applied to our lives, Father, what it means for us, Lord. We thank you that you are a God who accomplishes your purposes with an outstretched arm. And so even when your people may try to push you aside or want nothing to do with you, Lord, you pursue us. You pursue us, Lord. Thank you for your love that is steadfast, that it is unfailing, Lord, that you will not remove it from us, Father. But I pray even just for folks right now who may be going through difficult times in this room. Lord, I pray that you would allow your whisper to cut through the noise of pain, that they may hear your voice and feel your presence, Father, and be comforted as a result. We love you, and we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Before we close this morning, we're going to um, go ahead and celebrate the Lord's Supper. I'm going to read a scripture and, and just say a few words, and then um, there's tables around here, and when I get done, um, the band will come up and play, and then you can kind of just, as you feel led, go to the table and partake. And just a reminder, this is for those of us who, who are part of God's family, who have received salvation um, because of the work, the finished work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. This is primarily, this is for 
for family members. If you are visiting with us this morning, um, we would, and you're a follower of Jesus, we would invite you to partake um, in the Lord's Supper. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, if you think of Jesus' life, his ministry as he walked on this earth, it seems just about in every story that Jesus was always a guest. He's always a guest. The homes of Peter and Jairus and Martha and Mary, Jesus was a guest. At the meal tables of the wealthy, the prominent in the community, where he pled the cause of the poor, Jesus was a guest. Disrupted, polite company. Befriended, isolated people. He welcomed the stranger. Jesus was always a guest. But here, this morning, around these three tables, he's the host. Those who wish to serve him must first be served by him. Those who want to follow him must first be fed by him. Those who would wash his feet must first let him Make them clean. This is his table this morning where God intends us, you, me, to be nourished, to be filled. This is the time when Christ can make us new. So the invitation at these tables is this invitation that he has given us throughout eternity. To come those who hunger and to thirst for righteousness, you will be satisfied. You pray for us. Father God, thank you um, for the work that you accomplished throughout eternity to make a people for yourself. Lord, our prayer for us as a people is that we would be your people and that you would be our God. We ask these things in your name. Amen.